0: This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. All right, welcome into the College Football Fix Podcast, presented by USA Today Sports. It is Wednesday, December 29th, right around the middle of the day. It's important right now to timestamp these podcasts because the information changes and moves so fast. Bowl games being canceled teams losing players we're all sort of flying in the dark here a little bit uh but one thing we do know is that we will have a college football playoff on friday and it's going to be here in dallas where i am uh alabama versus cincinnati at three thirty eastern and then after that in miami at the orange bowl it's going to be georgia michigan i think Barring something crazy, these games are going to happen. Can't guarantee that all of the players will be there. Um, there were rumors that uh, popped up today about Daxton Hill of Michigan. They're all Big Ten safety, potentially being at home in Ann Arbor, dealing with COVID, unconfirmed by the team. But um, it, it's just a weird space to be in because a month ago, this looked like it was going to be a fairly normal type of bowl season. And now it just seems kind of like a white knuckle to the finish line. I really hope that the integrity of these games, the full rosters of these teams are on display and that nobody looks back on this whole thing and say and says, you know, if only we didn't have COVID, you know, but it feels like that is a potential outcome of Friday night.
1: Well, it depends whether um, that team wins or loses. If they win, then then it's an amazing achievement in the face of adversity. If they lose, then there's no doubt that the loser will say, hey, I mean, we had to deal with all these issues. I mean, this is unfair. I should have been an asterisk. Um Dan, what happened with the holiday bowl, I think, has a lot of people shook a little bit. I mean, you had UCLA canceling that game with hours left to go till kickoff. And I think that's I think that's worrisome to a lot of people. I think it's worrisome to me just to see a game that has been planned for weeks kind of fall out in the last moment. So, like you said, the playoff is going to happen, but um, it's going to be a race to the finish line across the board for the entire sport. We've got two weeks to go, roughly. I am hoping, like you, that we get there and wrap this thing up.
0: Yeah, and I I hate to make this a COVID podcast or talk about COVID, but it's, it's just a huge part of what's going on. I mean, in fact, it's why like the media day on Wednesday was four players in front of Zoom for 10 minutes as opposed to actual media day, which is what we've had in college football forever before COVID. Um, Obviously, the circumstances changed. That wasn't going to happen this year. I know that people don't really care about our media access, but I can just assure you that the quality of of everyone's coverage, not just ours, but literally the entire sports media of these games – is not as good as it would otherwise be because we just don't have a chance to sit down and ask people questions. Uh, and you've got to, you know, raise your hand on a Zoom and try to get one in. And it's a very impersonal interaction. And we we all hoped we'd be, we'd be past this by this point, but we're not. And so we have to deal with it. But I think one thing that's very important to point out in all this, and it's something that I just see on Twitter all day, every day, and it's just flat wrong, is that there's something about the protocols For these bowl games, that's different. And that's just not the case. Like, here's the reality of what's happening in college football right now. And this applies to the playoff. It applies to the holiday bowl. It applies to, you know, what happened with the military bowl. I mean, whatever game you want to talk about. We did not lose one single college football game to COVID this year outside of Cal. I believe Cal had one that was impacted. We did not lose games this year, and a lot of that was the protocols that were put in place, which were essentially that asymptomatic vaccinated players were not being tested. And I don't really remember, as we went through the season, seeing hardly any reports of individual players being out with COVID. It just really wasn't a thing this this past season. And now we're seeing it all the time. It's not because the protocols are different. The protocols are the same. What's different is the virus. This is the virus. And this idea that, oh, if we just didn't test asymptomatic players, that these games would be happening. I'm here to tell you guys, that's not true. Like, that's not not the case. Now, look, there are some situations across the country where the virus numbers are only part of why teams can't play. You know, with Texas A&M, as an example, who was supposed to go to the Gator Bowl, yeah, they had COVID issues. They also had opt-outs. They had transfers. They had regular injuries. And then by the time you factor COVID into all that, they just didn't have enough players. The playoff teams are better positioned because you don't have opt-outs and you don't really have people in the transfer portal from those teams yet. Uh, You will after the season, but they're still in the playoff mode. So their rosters start out from a fuller place. But this is what's happening out there in college football. You've got sick players. Now, I'm not saying that they're deathly ill or that they're going to the hospital or that anything is bad is going to happen to them long term. Like, they're going to be fine, uh, especially the ones who are vaccinated. They're going to have you know, a cold for a couple of days, a cold-like illness for a couple of days, and then they'll be okay. That seems to be the experience most people have. But the reason why you're getting these people placed in the protocols is because they are sick. They are symptomatic. They are sick. And I don't know what, we, what, what people are supposed to do about that. I mean, the extremists on one side of this thing are going to sit there and say, nobody should ever be tested. No mitigation measures. COVID is not real. COVID is no different than the sniffles. Let them play with COVID, all that stuff. I got to tell you, I'm not qualified to make that call. You're not qualified to make that call. Athletic directors aren't qualified to make that call. Like at some point, we as a society, as a country, as a government, as a health, public health apparatus may decide that that's how we handle this thing. When the virus gets to a certain point, we're not there yet. Like it or not, we're not there yet. So I just want people to understand that. This is not a different protocol than you had in the regular season. It's the same protocol. It's just more people are sick. And I I just wish people would get their arms around that.
1: Yeah, and we also need to understand that, like, this is happening in the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, college basketball, men's and women's. Like, college football is not going to be immune to this. I, I give the sport a lot of credit for getting here. But as we know, because of this variant, a lot of that was simply because of a combination of the vaccine and the ability to weather through Delta phase and now we're in Omicron phase where this according to experts, if we trust the experts, that has evolved to a point where it sacrificed um a lot of its potency for an ability to duplicate its lifespan and to and to pass more easily from host to host. So that's what's happening in college football. But look it's happening across the board, every sport. So um
0: not not just every sport, like but everywhere world, everywhere right? in America.
1: Right. I mean it's impacting you know, our Christmas, it's impacting our holiday travel, it's impacting football games. I mean So it's disappointing, but let's not poo-poo it and say that, you know, it's not a big deal. It is still a big deal because the transmission rate is so high, whether you're on a football team or, like you're saying, in an airport or in a restaurant, whatever. The other thing that
0: I just hate about this whole situation is that it has bred all of these conspiracy theories about why teams are pulling out of these bowl games. You know, and like UCLA is getting crushed. For not playing the holiday bowl and you know a couple days before the game they thought they were good to go like they knew they had some issues but they thought they were going to be good to go if you take them at face value they were ready to play the game and then all of a sudden on tuesday morning they had a bunch of more guys pop up sick and that brought their numbers down to the point where they couldn't play safely and um like i'm not in a position to question UCLA's motives or anything like that. Like I take them at face value that they wanted to play the game. I, I think it's illogical to think that these teams don't want to play. Like they're in San Diego. They're about to play the next day. They've been practicing for however many, three weeks, like playing the games is the, is, is the best part for football players. So I don't really understand all this and and where sort of this, angst is coming from and dave doran you know ranting and raving about how it's handled i mean yo dave like uh when's the last time you shared a bunch of injury information with your opponents like that's just not what college football does so i'm sorry you got blindsided i don't think you're any sorrier than ucla is
1: yeah and i think that the lack of communication is what they're talking about like not being up to date with ucla could there have been more of a dialogue like beginning in the morning, maybe, but we're splitting hairs. I just don't, I don't think that's like really the argument we want to have. Um, we saw last year when the, when the pandemic was really raging, that teams like Charlotte would get on the tarmac to go to a game and then realize yeah. that they couldn't make it. So I don't know why we're surprised now. This isn't some sort of conspiracy. Oh, UCLA didn't want to play in the games. I thought they might lose to NC state. That's that's a little bit crazy. I mean, it's not as crazy as the other conspiracy theories, out there related to COVID, but it's it's up there from a college football perspective so um i don't like we forgot we forgot because this year has been so smooth how bad it could be with this pandemic and and we're being reminded
0: well and this this whole other thing about oh well if only ucla had notified nc state they could have found some other opponent i'm sorry folks like this is not as it's not that easy uh we've seen across the board there have been a couple situations that worked out one was Rutgers being willing to play the Gator Bowl instead of Texas A&M which we'll see how that works out but trust me when I tell you that like it's not like there's a long line of teams jumping up and down waving their hands saying we want to go play the Gator Bowl Um, and then you know you had the the situation with Central Michigan they were supposed to play in the the Arizona Bowl and they end up going over to the Sun Bowl. And it just so happened that teams from both game from both games or each game lost a team. Arizona, pretty close to El Paso, wasn't a long trip. The timing worked out. Like it just it worked. But it's not easy for this for this stuff to happen and for teams to just suddenly shift and fly their whole operation across the country. It's it's hard. So I just think people's expectations need to be more in line with the reality of this. This is hard. This is catching people off guard. We weren't ready for for Omicron to, to mess with bowl season, but it is. And you just kind of have to have head, head on a swivel. Now, having said all that, let's focus on the games as best we can and talk about these semifinal matchups and what we think is going to happen. Let's start with Alabama-Cincinnati. I think there's a pretty straightforward case here. That Alabama is just more talented, deeper, more talented, better, more athletic, faster. You know, whatever word you want to use, and that that will be enough to carry them into a, a comfortable win. You certainly on giving Nick Saban a month to prepare. Historically, been a pretty good thing for Alabama in these games. They use well in the semifinals, um, but. The case for Cincinnati, at least as far as I'm concerned, is you've got an NFL quarterback in Desmond Ritter. Uh, you've you've got some NFL players on their defense. Obviously, with John Mechie out of the lineup for Alabama, that gives Cincinnati one less elite wide receiver to have to track. And so you can kind of put Sauce Gardner on Jamison Williams, and and maybe that takes away, you know, one of the best options for for Alabama's offense um Cincinnati can probably stop the run because most people have stopped the run against Alabama this year and so then it just comes down to can you force Bryce Young to make a couple mistakes and then maybe Cincinnati's got a chance it's an interesting theory I don't know which side of that argument do you fall on
1: I think the argument is is a really good one and for me it's really easy to make Um, the three things that will decide this game from Cincinnati's perspective is that you can trust your QB. You think that you can get it after the quarterback. I know Alabama did a great job against Georgia, but two games ago, they got chewed up by Auburn and Cincinnati's got some talent up front. They got some talent on the edge and they've got uh, Kobe Bryant and uh, sauce Gardner, the best cornerback combo in the country, um, to kind of try to slow down Alabama's passing game. You know, yep. clearly if there was some sort of talent, um, equity, you would probably pick Cincinnati to win this game. I know that's like a really stupid comparison to make, but like if you didn't think that Alabama could just out-talent them, you like this matchup on paper for Cincinnati. Um, But who's picking against Alabama in this setting? I mean, this is five straight semifinal wins for them since they lost to Ohio State in the first one. They know how to prep for these games. Um, Their average margin of victory in these games is, in the last five, over 20 points per game, influenced a lot by the fact they beat Michigan State by 38, but they've had all double-digit wins against some really good teams. So i'm picking alabama but i think cincinnati does have a pathway to win you know um i just think that that pathway is pretty narrow wouldn't take a perfect game but it's going to take an a game combined with a c game from alabama rice young makes mistakes they've got a shot but they've got to force him to make those mistakes I and mean, he's got a handful of picks all year 43 touchdowns so it's not just as simple as saying hey we're going to put him into third and 12 and just make an interception or two um but that's the way that they have to win this game
0: Yeah, I think if you look back at Alabama's season, you know we always have recency bias when we talk about teams. And the last time we saw Alabama, they looked like the best team in the country. They were amazing that day in the SEC championship game. It was their best game of the season by far. They were awesome. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's really them. I mean, they're certainly capable of that because we saw it, but I'm not sure that that's like a median performance. For Alabama, we saw them a lot this year mess around against LSU, against Florida, against Arkansas. Like They looked pretty gettable in five to six games, probably, this season. And so I do think there's an argument, argument to be made that if, you're, if you sort of get a median Alabama performance, then Cincinnati's got a real shot here. But... I've thought a lot about this over the last several years since we've we've had this playoff. And I think one of the reasons why the favorites tend to do so well in the semifinals and why the games are just generally not that close is because it's a totally different cadence from the regular season. You know, in the regular season, you're basically playing, you know, 12 weeks out of 13. You go from one game to the next, to the next, to the next. You don't really have a lot of time to prepare to put stuff in. You don't have a lot of time to heal nicks and bruises and injuries. You know, just minor stuff that that can linger from one game to the next. You, You tend to sort of just carry that forward all through the season. Well, what you see now in the college football playoff. Oh, and by the way, you see it in the NFL, too. Like, that's how it works in the NFL. But when you get into the college football playoff, that three to four week break, I think it really gives teams, the the good teams, the elite teams, the chance to be the best version of themselves when they step out on the field for the semifinals. They're healthier than they've been since since August. They are more prepared than they've been since August for, for a specific opponent. And I just think that's, That's right in Alabama's wheelhouse because of the talent they have. And because of Saban, like an underdog has to get a bad game from Alabama to win. And I just don't think the circumstances of the playoff lend themselves to Alabama having a bad game.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that Cincinnati could lean on that I I think is going to help them um, is last year's experience for this team on a similar timeline. I believe they played the Peach on January 1st last year or maybe January 2nd. Don't remember exactly when. Nonetheless, the run-up time was similar. Um, the amount of time it took to prep is not the same as when you play, for example, the Birmingham Bowl, which is a week earlier, like Houston played in yesterday against Auburn. Um, they prepped for an SEC team in Georgia. You know, I think there's a little bit of, of an analog there that could help them get ready for Alabama. Not to get ready for the Alabama game, but to get through these weeks um And know how to use your time, how to game plan, how to get physically ready and how to kind of tune your body back up through the holidays. So I think that's an advantage. But look like. Big Saban has done this seven times in eight years, um, and I think that that is given him a method and a, and a style and an approach for this that is unimpeachable. So I think Alabama's in better shape from a mental perspective going into this game because they have been there so many times that there is a style. but. Um, you know, one thing about Cincinnati, and this is like about to take us in a different direction. I just think that from a mental perspective, the way they carry themselves, um, the cockiness that they've played with for so many years under Fickle, certainly the last three, um, I think they'll be up for this game. I mean, obviously they'll be up, but I think they'll be ready for this game. I don't think they'll be too up or down. I just think they i think they know what they're getting into. I think they'll be ready to play, uh, but that will mean nothing in terms of, of when the ball is actually kicked off. That's a different animal. But I do think Cincinnati will know how to prep. Alabama has that advantage, but
0: they know how to get there. Yeah, you you make an interesting point with Cincinnati and what happened last year in the Peach Bowl against Georgia. You know, it's kind of one of those situations where we do have at least a little sample size of how they match up physically against an SEC team. Now, Georgia had some guys out for that game or whatever, but Cincinnati acquitted themselves well. They were not physically overmatched. Now, they had issues in the game offensively, after James Hudson uh, got thrown out of the game for targeting, you know, their offensive lineman and basically the player they replaced him with was, 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 it was a pretty big drop off and, and it affected their offense still, you know, they had the lead going into the fourth quarter of that game and just couldn't quite, you know, get enough offense going to to get over the finish line, but it was a good performance. Uh, We saw them in Notre Dame stadium physically, they held up, just fine against Notre Dame. I don't think that's going to be their issue. I do think they're going to have some trouble moving the ball up and down the field. I just think, you know, if there's one area where they're probably going to have some, some issues, it's on the offensive line.
1: Yeah. That's typically when you see these matchups where the big difference is like from tackle to tackle on your interior defense and then across your whole entire offensive front, because look, places like Alabama and Georgia, Uh, they're recruiting an entirely different beast up front. Those guys who are your 300-plus guys, they're just different animals. They're physical freaks compared to physical freaks, but Alabama's run a different level. So, yeah, I do think Alabama wins that battle up front on both ends. But like I said, I mean, I can't stop thinking. You made a point before about what do we make of Alabama-Georgia compared to Alabama-Auburn, Alabama-Florida, Alabama-LSU. I just can't stop thinking about the way their offensive line played against Auburn. yeah, it was sandwiched after New Mexico State and before Georgia. You know, uh, you haven't had multiple weeks to get ready, but it seems to me there's a vulnerability there, at least against the pass rush. But from Cincinnati's perspective, on their offensive line and then on their interior defensive line, I think they have the opportunity the potential to not match up well enough physically to win this game. So if they went up front like Alabama, um, I think that they can have a lot a lot a lot of success against Cincinnati, even with those corners.
0: All right, over-under, does Cincinnati score more than 14 points?
1: Yes, I do think they get over 14. I even think that this game could be really, really close. And if it's a close game, again, it favors Alabama because Cincinnati can't kick field goals I mean, whatsoever. Yeah, that's they're a
0: big 7, issue. Yeah. A year.
1: yeah, so a close game favors Alabama. A shootout obviously favors Alabama. The whole thing favors Alabama. But I think Cincinnati gets into the end zone twice plus. Wouldn't be surprised if they're in the low 20s, like a 38-24 game. Seems to me like that would cover the spread, right? Isn't Alabama 13, 13 and a half?
0: Yeah. 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 The, the field goal thing is, is a big deal because I think if you're Cincinnati, you're probably going to be in some situations where you're facing fourth and two at the 31 yard line. And, you know, I think if depending on the flow of the want to kick a field goal, but you really just can't, you know, you just can't. Because you don't think there's a good chance of making it. And um, you know, when you're if you're like if they happen to be up seven, you know, in the game in, in middle of the third quarter, like that field goal would be a huge freaking deal, you know, if they if they had a great kicker. So yeah, I think I think that's a factor. That's a potential factor. Um, and it's certainly the the biggest weakness they've had all season long. All right, the other one, uh Georgia-Michigan, it's a game where I really want to and am tempted to pick Michigan. Uh, I, I know a lot of Georgia fans <laughs> that are very pessimistic about this game. Uh, I think some of that is rooted in the tortured history of the Georgia program in some ways and also just how much they wet the bed in the SEC championship. Uh, but I still think at the end of the day this is a matchup that's just custom made for Georgia to win like they're not just the more talented team and they certainly are but it's a, it's actually a good matchup for them i think what michigan does well and what they want to do well georgia is is built to stop and i think i don't know that you need much more analysis of this game than that
1: Yeah, strength against strength, right? Both teams know what they want to do, and they're very similar in that regard. And you're right. I think this is the dream matchup for Georgia. I don't think you want to be playing Michigan that has just beaten Ohio State and Iowa by a combined score of 89 to 30 and average almost eight yards per play. I think they're rolling, and I think that's probably contributing to Georgia's sense of pessimism, not the team, but the fan base. But yeah, I, I think this matchup plays into their hands. If you get to a position and when you're Georgia, and it's going to be hey, can our like front seven win battles on a regular basis? Two thirds of the time, sixty percent of the time, feel really, really, really good about that. At least I would if I were Georgia. Um, offensively, I don't feel that great, but I think from a defensive perspective, I really think Georgia can can match up really well with Michigan um, and make things really hard on the Wolverines.
0: Yeah, Kirby Smart said uh, today, reiterated that. Uh, Stetson Bennett is the starting quarterback. Uh, JT Daniels did have COVID. Uh, apparently, he is gonna be available. But I don't think Georgia it, the, the ship has sailed. You know, Kirby Smart's not the type of coach who was gonna pull the plug on Stetson Bennett just because of what happened in the SEC championship game. And, you know, he, he's right in the sense that it wasn't Stetson Bennett's fault it wasn't he wasn't the reason that, that they got boat raced in that game but you know against a certain type of opponent we've talked about it before Stetson Bennett's just not well equipped to sort of lead you up and down the field in a game where you're going to have to go score for score and that's why they got in trouble against Alabama and certainly if they play again it's it's a it's a major factor but you know this to me seems like the kind of game it's probably going to be like 17-14. And so then the question that that falls on Stetson Bennett's shoulders if it's that kind of game is does he avoid the big mistake, the pick six, the throwing into double coverage because Aiden Hutchinson is breathing down his neck? Like that's the kind of thing that that would potentially turn this into Michigan having the upper hand and Then at that point, you know, running the ball kind of becomes a little more of a luxury than a necessity.
1: Yeah, I could see him, Georgia winning this game and Bennett having one of those games where he's like 11 for 16 for 134 yards.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, he needs to look across the sideline at Kay McNamara, um, who makes very, very, very few mistakes. He plays very careful, um, cautious football, but he does not make mistakes. And that's to the benefit of, of Michigan's offense that kind of pick six is the game changing play for both teams. Like, it's weird. It feels like one of those games, like you said, that could be 21, 17, 21, 14, but still feel like a more convincing win for Georgia because they're going to control the tempo maybe, or control the flow up front. But just one play can flip it and give Michigan a great, great chance. I I feel like we're kind of minimizing the Wolverines chances. They have a good shot at this. Oh yeah. Because look, (laughs) Michigan gets to play their game too. And that game has been pretty good recently. So, um, it's a very intriguing matchup. Both teams, very little room for error. Um, and obviously you're winning this game on first and second down. If this gets into like every, every series is third and eight, third and seven. Yeah. it's trouble. Um, that's trouble for both teams. Both.
0: Yeah. Teams. So what I've been trying to think about is, all right, what happens if, if Michigan just can't really run the ball, you know, what, what do they have up their sleeve? And, like this isn't rocket science. Obviously, Jim Harbaugh and Josh Gaddis have been thinking about this too for the last three weeks. So I do think one of the interesting things about this game is that they're going to have some type of plan or or you know some plays designed to you know try to loosen that thing up, open it up, and and in some ways kind of go against their their character, um, you know, just to give Georgia something to think about. And we really don't know what that's going to be because we haven't seen it but with the time they've had you know they've been working on something you know you know that Josh Gaddis has figured out or tried to figure out some way to to loosen up that offense against that front and i think that's part of the intrigue of this matchup is 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 the coaching of it and by the way georgia has had a defensive coordinator with you know half of his brain locked on Oregon for the last few weeks. Dan Lanning is, as soon as Georgia season ends, is going to be the head coach at Oregon. He's been trying to get together a staff and recruit and do all that stuff for Oregon. And I know everybody who's been in this position before says, you know, they just stay up late at night and have reserve time every day to do both jobs, but it's still doing two jobs and it's not easy. So I think we'll know like in the first, couple series of, of, of the game, how, how the coaching part is going to play out in, in the chess match between uh, Josh Gaddis and Dan Landing.
1: Yeah. And I think in addition to seeing like what Michigan brings to the table and, and not necessarily from a gimmicky perspective, but just to try to be a little bit different on offense. Um, I'd love to see how these teams come out for the second half. If we're tight at halftime and yep. how these two, these two coaching staffs make adjustment, obviously will we'll be, will be really telling. Um the track record of coordinators taking other jobs. Like I always think about Mark Rick leaving Florida state and what that did to the Seminoles um, uh, when they played Oklahoma way back in the day. Um, I don't really know recently. Have we had that? Am I blanking? Well,
0: no, I mean, well, well, Kirby did it once successfully when he got the Georgia job.
1: Right. 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 Um, Well, he didn't really do it successfully in that game. Didn't they give up like, they gave up forty or whatever they, but they did. No. They gave
0: up a lot of points, but they won. They won.
1: Yeah, I'm just joking.
0: Um, not so successfully for Lane Kiffin, if you remember.
1: That doesn't count though, because he he technically was Jesson before the game started. He was so, he
0: was, but he he did such a bad job getting ready for the semifinals. He coached is. he coached the semifinals.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: People forget that he 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 got the Florida Atlantic job, coached the semifinals against Washington. And then Saban fired him the following, you know, whatever it was, Monday or Tuesday, uh, and and made Sark the offensive coordinator for the championship game. So, uh, and it's it's happened, um, it's happened. I, I think a couple other times. Did did it happen once with Jeff Scott uh, going to South Florida?
1: I don't think they. Uh... Yeah, well, they lost to LSU that game. I don't know if I'd give.
0: Yeah, I don't I wouldn't
1: attribute it to that. Yeah. I wouldn't no, attribute I think it to it's, get a, it's an interesting thing for landing uh and it's an interesting uh, uh situation for Georgia. I don't really know if I put a lot of stock into the idea that he's not gonna be fully invested in this. Or that of course it's he's not invested. that he's not I mean fully like,
0: invested, it's he's just not hard. He's
1: gonna be just too pulled in different directions. Yeah. It happens, but um this is not like a paint by numbers performance for Georgia's defense, but I think they know what they need to do. Um yeah. I think their ability to rotate a lot of bodies to be uh I wouldn't say multiple in terms of how they line up up front, but just multiple in terms of what they do in terms of twists and stunts and all the kind of the, you know, musical chairs that they play with their with their linebackers and and their defensive front, I think is going to be an issue for Michigan in terms of their communication. I just think this is a good matchup for Georgia's defense. I just like the matchup, you know, we'll see how it plays out. But I, I I'm taking Georgia because of that. I like to take Michigan and Cincinnati, but I'm not really sure if I can if I have the guts for that.
0: All right, so I think we're both uh, kind of in the same place in these games. We both have Alabama-Georgia, which means we're probably going to get a Michigan-Cincinnati national championship game. No doubt. That's how it works. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the bowls that we've seen since our last podcast. Uh, One of the things that has emerged here in bowl season is that the SEC is 0-4. Now, I don't know that we need to make too much of that, but it's interesting. You know some of it's obviously matchup based, and some of it's the state of the teams, like Auburn, you know, this was not a even even by the mediocre standard that Auburn set this season, this was not a full version of Auburn, and they were still right there against Houston, and it was seventeen thirteen and whatever. But uh, Mississippi State got absolutely railroaded by uh, Texas Tech. It was not close. UCF, big win for Gus Malzahn over Florida. Again, a Florida team that is just basically trying to uh, get to next season with uh, the coaching change. And then Army uh, beat Missouri, which is a really, really nice win for Army. I mean, is there any, any takeaway or is it just kind of, yeah, bad matchups and it's not the good SEC teams anyway?
1: Um uh, Texas tech, Mississippi state. I put a lot of stock in because I believe Mike Leach was very invested and very much wanted to win this game by. Oh, there's points. no doubt.
0: No doubt right. about that.
1: So to lose by 27, <clears throat> Texas tech, should actually give him a check, a huge check, but it says, um, 27 points on it. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, but yeah, like Missouri army, that game doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me, but it still really would concern me a little bit. Um, this isn't like playing army on September 13th between coastal Carolina or you know Western Carolina and Georgia. Um, this is like a couple of weeks to prepare for this. You're physically ready. You know you don't need to bounce back and play in another six days. I would have liked to see Missouri win that game, just for me. Um, but Houston, Auburn, Auburn did not seem like they wanted to be there, but I still <laughs> thought they they only lose by four to Houston is not a bad thing. Um, and like you said, Florida, UCF, um, Florida really did not want to be there. No. So I think George Alabama is going to tell the story of this thing. Um, it is obvious that the sec could very well finish with a losing record in bowl play when all is said and done, but that's not going to impact any of the, uh, of the, you know, national perceptions that we have about conference strength. We will forget about this very fast. And as you know, um, a very helpful flowchart I saw online yesterday, um, if you win a bowl game, it's it's extremely meaningful and it's going to really carry things through to next season and be a a vault and, and a a leap frog board, leaping board, diving board towards a great season in twenty twenty two. But if you lose a bowl game and you're the SEC, it's because you weren't properly motivated. So we know how
0: always, that always, and forever, right? I did find it funny the the Birmingham Bowl. I mean, what an epic! News conference after the game from Dana Holgerson. I mean, first of all, he comes in and he's mad because Brian Harson's press conference like went 20 minutes, and I guess Holgerson was like ready to roll and basically had to like stand outside and at one point like banged on the door and said hurry up. And then he comes right in and bitches at the at the people who run the bowl game for not having separate news conferences. And then he made some comment that everything was great in Birmingham except the food. Like I guess he didn't. What's I guess he, he got bad restaurant is he, recommendations. Is he going out to dinner?
1: I don't think he's doing that. Um, yeah, that was, uh, he was a little crotchety for a guy who just won 12 games after you, being like four and 16 through his first two years.
0: He was very crotchety. And then of course at night he posts a picture of himself on Twitter uh, outside at his uh, pool, I guess, in, in back in Houston. I assume that's where he was.
1: with no, the No, tro- that does not, that struck me that he lives at a, at a, um, at a, spring hill suites that was not his that was not where he lived right that looked like an office building like i'm pretty sure that he lives that it's not a residence in because there's only the windows are too small it looks like a courtyard or, or maybe a spring hill suite
0: no no no. that was no i take a closer look at that picture that was definitely his house hmm. sorry i've got a dog barking in the background
1: okay yeah that did not strike me as his place but hey that's cool i loved how he put the birmingham bowl uh due, the trophy the, the trophy into a into his uh, seat next to him on the airplane and buckled him in. She probably should do that thing probably weighs a hundred something pounds. Um, but yeah, uh, the whole thing from arguing at the press conference to bringing it back to your Spring Hill suites room and then having a, like microwaving, one of those rigatoni things in the lobby and having <laughs> a glass of wine, like feels to me very David Holgerson, very on brand.
0: Sounds like something you've done in the past.
1: I've done that. I've never in my life ever. And I've spent a lot of money at those Marriott lobby kiosk things. Yes, I've Never yes. used the, uh, never gotten a frozen meal and microwaved it. There's something to me that, that smells a very divorced dad to me to do that. I'm no. not willing to stoop to that level.
0: A lot of commentary online, by the way, about that Birmingham Bowl trophy.
1: What is up with it? What is he holding in his? A hand? lot of,
0: well, it's more the back. It's more you know because basically, like he's not wearing pants. So a lot of commentary, a lot of commentary on the, on the buns. What is he supposed to be though? Some type of like medieval iron worker or something. I don't know. I I, I, I guess, or maybe I I don't know.
1: Working at a deli or something like that. Like he was the meat slicer. Isn't he wearing a long, long sort of smock?
0: Yeah. But but if you look at the back, it's open.
1: Pantless. So he may be leaving the hospital of some kind. Kind of like like that. to get an x-ray. Wow. What kind of... Bitco, Degenerate, made that trophy. Probably the same guy who did the um, the old Hawk trophy um, between Iowa and Iowa State. Everyone should Google that. Um, I think the bigger the trophy, the better for bowl games. Make it wild, make it weird. So,
0: Thursday, we've got slated the uh, Duke's Mayo Bowl, North Carolina, South Carolina. Apparently, there are some COVID issues for South Carolina, but Shane Beamer says they should be good to go. The winner... I'll put winner in air quotes uh, gets a bucket of Duke's Mayo poured on their heads. So uh, we've talked about this. It's I think the most disgusting thing I've ever seen or even thought of. I want no part of it. I would purposely lose just so I didn't have to deal with it. Um, But I will say I'll, I'll I'll be watching because that's going to be a visual.
1: Yeah. I legitimately um, might want to, might choose having a bucket of rats poured on my head than a bucket Ugh. of mayo, like the rat bowl. And you would then take a bucket full of rats and pour it on top of my head. I would take the mayo, um, but I would think about it. I would think about
0: it. Uh, Tennessee, Purdue, Music City Bowl, Thursday, you got the Peach Bowl, you got Wisconsin, Arizona State, and the Vegas Bowl. So that's kind of fun. On um, What's weird to me about the whole bowl season setup, and I've – complained about this forever i mean to me the bowl schedule should build toward a crescendo and that the last two games should be the semifinals right like that's just sort of what feels natural to me what feels right instead you you're playing the first semifinal you're kicking it off at 3:30 p.m. on what is a work day for a lot of people like on the west coast it's going to be it's going to be 12:30 on friday People are going to be on lunch hour. Like it's it's ludicrous we're doing this, but it's what we're doing. Uh, at least for this year, New Year's Eve, and then you wake up Saturday, and like to me, it should all be about oh, here's your two teams playing for the national championship. But all of a sudden, you got to shift to up oh, Penn State Arkansas is kicking off at eleven, and you get the Fiesta Bowl, and like, I just hate that the sport does this to itself. It's ridiculous, but these people just think like. The people running college football think that everything in the country is the same as it was 40 years ago, and it's just not, you know, and they just make no adjustments for it.
1: So, you would want to have like semis on January 3rd this year, and then play this championship on the 10th, just like just have it to be second to last, and then last. We do have that game on the fifth, but throw that out that's what you'd like to have. Shorten the time, no.
0: If it's up to me, what I would do is I would start these bowl games literally the week after the conference championship games. Mm-hmm. And then, however, you need to do the schedule, I would play the final, the championship game on, you know, I, I would play this, I would play the semifinals on New Year's Day, and I would play the championship game the next week. I don't think you want to move the season much later than that, because I already think that by January 10th, college football kind of fades from the consciousness. People, sports fans, the casual sports fans have moved on to the NFL playoffs by that point. And it just that sucks up all the oxygen And college football just kind of goes away. Like it kind of goes away in this interim period between the conference championship games and and these bowls. So I, I just think that the whole schedule needs to be rethought. And, and to me, ending the season sooner is better.
1: Yeah. I, I think, I mean, we know from, from numbers. And I think we notice from the flow of things like after Christmas until new year's college football is quiet. Like yeah. people are a little bit tuned out and they definitely tune out from the semis or rather from the new year's day games from January 2nd through the championship. There's a lot of tune out. Um, you know, and then obviously ratchets back up on that Monday, probably through Wednesday or so. But I think there is an argument for reevaluating and, and reconsidering the bowl slate and the bowl schedule. But like you said, the only option is to move things up. And then you get into a conversation with bowl games and with ESPN. Hey, can we play a game on December 11th this year or December 10th in another year? Like, can we get that set up and ready to go right away and have a team turn around that fast? Um, that's the solution. Um Again, another hangup is the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl is always a hangup. So you've always got to work around that on the first. But yeah, I would like to see um, even more of a spotlight on these championship games. I mean, why not blow them up and make them the only show in town? Like how, putting them on December 31st, as always, is a mistake and it'll backfire again in terms of the numbers.
0: Yeah, except for the fact that a lot of people are basically going to be stuck at home because of COVID or not going out or not doing their normal New Year's Eve thing, they may get a bump in viewership from that. Uh, And hopefully the games will be good. Like, I I think that's one thing that always solves some of these problems is if the games are really good, people kind of tune in, you know, they see, hear about it or see it on Twitter, or they just pass it by on the, you know, on flipping channels and they see it's a close game. And and so they stop and watch. So we'll see how it goes, but uh, hopefully it's a fun New Year's Eve for us who are really invested in this stuff and who just want to see some competitive football, which uh, you don't always get in these semifinals. So everybody has a great uh, new year's. We'll be back next week to break down what happened in the semifinals and then look ahead to the national championship game until then for Paul Meyerberg, I'm Dan Walken from USA Today sports. Please subscribe to USA Today sports plus subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts like and leave a positive review certainly helps get the word out talk to you guys next time merry christmas happy new year enjoy the games the college football fix podcast (laughs) with paul meyerberg and dan Wolken.